From the darkest reaches of space to the deepest corners of your mind. Your mind. Welcome to From the Void. For decades, astronomers and scientists alike have attempted to find evidence of alien life. They've sent golden records deep into space aboard probes. They've used massive satellite dishes designed to listen for radio signals from space. They've used highly sensitive telescopes to look for any evidence that we are not alone in the cosmos. But what if, what if some alien species has already taken notice of us? And not only that, but has sent a probe to check us out. This week's guest is Dr. Avi Loeb. Dr. Loeb is the Frank B. Baird Jr. Professor of Science at Harvard University and a best-selling author. He received his PhD in physics from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in Israel at age 24, led the first international project supported by the Strategic Defense Initiative, and was subsequently a long-term member of the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. He's written eight books, including the recent Extraterrestrial, and over 800 papers on a wide range of topics, including black holes, the first stars, the search for extraterrestrial life, and the future of the universe. In 2017, Dr. Loeb rocked the scientific community when he co-wrote a paper that argued that a mysterious object nicknamed Amuamua, spotted by astronomers passing through our solar system, was in fact a probe sent here by an alien civilization. We talk all about why he feels so strongly that this mysterious object was no naturally occurring phenomenon on this week's episode, Extraterrestrial, the Mystery of Oumuamua. Welcome to From the Void. All right. Welcome, uh, Dr. Avi Loeb. Thank you so much for spending some time tonight with us. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So for folks who aren't familiar with your work, tell, tell people a little bit about your background and, and what you do. Well, I'm still the same kid that grew up on a farm. Uh, people that know me would tell you that I haven't changed much. And I see science as a privilege of maintaining your childhood curiosity without worrying too much about the way you are perceived. Unfortunately, in academia, that is not very common these days. Uh, people worry about their image. But um, I grew up on a farm and I was mainly interested in uh, questions in philosophy. And uh, then uh, circumstances brought me uh, to a tenured appointment at Harvard University as a professor of science and mainly focused on astronomy. But uh, I then realized that my arranged marriage is actually to my true love, because uh, in astronomy, we can actually address philosophical questions and um, using the scientific method. And that's pretty much what I'm doing now. I really enjoy it. And uh, some of the fundamental questions that I enjoy addressing are um, what happened early on in the universe? How was the first light uh, created by the first stars? This is a, a frontier that I helped uh, pioneer um, some couple of decades ago. And uh, it's uh, basically the scientific version of the story of Genesis that you find in the first chapter of the Old Testament, the Bible. And uh, 
And then uh, another subject is uh, black holes that I'm very interested in, uh, in particular imaging them, uh, seeing uh, the silhouette of a black hole, a subject that I worked on for uh, 15 years. And just a, a couple of years ago, uh, the first image was obtained uh, at the black hole initiative in the, in the conference room of our center that I um, was the founding director of. So we are very proud of the first image of a black hole to have been obtained uh, at Harvard. And, um, and then uh, the most exciting uh, frontier that I'm happy to, to work on right now is the search for extraterrestrial life. And I just finished two books over the past uh, six months. Uh, one of them is at a popular level, which is called The Extra Extraterrestrial. Um, and um, it became a bestseller uh, in the US and uh, many other countries. It's translated to 25 languages, 28 editions, and I had about a thousand interviews about it over the past six months. And um, the second is a textbook, uh, more than a thousand pages long, to be used by scientists working in this area. And it uh, was just published uh, uh, recently, and uh, um, that's more for professionals. And uh, both of these address uh, the quest for uh, answering the question, you know, are we alone? Or more importantly, in my mind is, are we the smartest kid uh, in the cosmic block? Yeah. So, I mean, you, you're obviously involved in a lot of uh, a lot of different projects. You know, you, you talk, mentioned black holes and, and the origins of the universe. So how did you become interested in the search for extraterrestrial life? Oh, it was uh, gradual. At first, uh, I had the idea, you know, we were, I was invited to uh, take part in a, a conference to inaugurate a new uh, campus that uh, New York University established in uh, Abu Dhabi. And uh, uh, so I went there and uh, then uh, we had a tour through Dubai and Abu Dhabi and the tour guide was bragging that uh, since it's next to oil fields, then they have so much uh, power there that the city lights uh, of uh, Dubai and Abu Dhabi they, uh, can be seen all the way from the moon at nighttime. And uh, then uh, I asked a colleague of mine, Ed Turner, who also attended the conference, I said, oh, that's interesting. You know, uh, how far away can we see with the Hubble Space Telescope city lights? Uh, so we, uh, you know, instead of uh, listening to all the lectures uh, at the conference, we were checking, you know, how much light is emitted by Tokyo. And suppose Tokyo existed on Pluto. Would we see it with the Hubble Space Telescope? The answer is yes. In a very deep image of the Hubble Space Telescope, you can see a city like Tokyo all the way to the outskirts of the solar system. And um, then we wrote a paper about it. So how can you tell that you're seeing a city uh, versus an object that just reflects sunlight? Or that you're seeing, you could see a spaceship moving uh, that produces some artificial light. How can you differentiate that from an object like an asteroid or a comet or some uh, rock that is reflecting sunlight? And the answer is very easily because an object that reflects sunlight dims much more quickly as it recedes away from the sun uh, because the amount of light that is impinging on its surface uh, uh, gets uh, lower as it moves away. And then on top of that, the increasing distance uh, makes the flux that we receive smaller. And altogether, it, it, go, uh, it dims as inversely with distance to the fourth power. And if you have an object producing its own light, 
then it dims only inversely with distance squared, just like a light bulb, um, you know, as you move away from a light bulb. So um, we wrote a paper saying you can tell the difference. And when I asked uh, a, a, an astronomer that uh, his name is Mike Brown from Caltech that worked for many years, on, he actually discovered many of the uh, most distant objects in the solar system in the so-called the Kuiper belt. Uh, I asked him, did you ever check whether any of these objects gets dimmer inversely with distance to the fourth power or distance squared? He said, why should I check? It must be inversely with distance to the fourth power. It must be reflection of sunlight. So here, you know, in a nutshell, is why astronomers do not discover new things because they assume they know the answer in advance. And uh, we will get back to this theme later on. But um, uh, that was my first encounter with a forecast for a technological signature. Uh, of course, before that, I had a paper just using, uh, arguing that radio telescopes that we developed for the purpose of imaging hydrogen in the infant universe can also detect uh, um, radio waves leaking out of a planet that has you know, radio or television broadcasts. Um, I see that less of an original idea, just basically saying that we're building for the for cosmology, these, these new te radio telescopes that would be extremely sensitive. They can also be used for eavesdropping. And that, that paper I wrote um, some uh, seven years earlier, but, um, and I remember actually that one of the leaders in the in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence visited the Center for Astrophysics and said, um, even Avi Loeb is working on this subject. He just wrote a paper. So as if that was a completely unexpected uh, thing for me to do, working on cosmology that I decided. So anyway, um, after that, in 2015, I came across the idea that you might actually search for uh, industrial pollution, because at that time people talked a lot about climate change. And I said, okay, well, suppose there is industrial pollution in the atmosphere of another planet. Can we see it? And uh, we wrote a paper with an undergraduate student talking about CFCs, these molecules that are produced by refrigerating systems and, uh, you know, uh, uh, industries here on Earth. And the idea is that you can search for the, these things um, in the atmospheres of other planets that are transiting their star. Instead of searching for oxygen or methane, like the mainstream of astronomy is arguing. And by the way, oxygen didn't really uh, exist in large quantities in the atmosphere, even though there were lots of microbes on Earth for the first two billion years. So if you don't find oxygen, it doesn't say that there are no microbes, there is no life. So, But if you find CFCs, it definitely tells you that not only there is life, but industrial life. So I think it's worth motivating some of the future telescopes that the astronomy community is proposing for the cost of, you know, billions of dollars, saying we might actually search for industrial pollution. Again, it's not something that is being uh, embraced by the mainstream, just like looking for city lights is not embraced. Um, and then... Um, uh, a couple of years later, 2017, October 19th, there was this first interstellar object, the first object from outside the solar system that was discovered by a telescope in Hawaii uh, called PANSTARS. It was given the name Oumuamua. And at first, everyone assumed that it's a rock that came from another star. But then uh, as uh, more data was collected, it didn't look like anything we've seen before. So I just made the proposal that it may be artificial in origin. And of course, that created a huge splash both in the media 
and among my colleagues, and I'm still feeling the ripples of that. Uh, and I wrote the, the book on that uh, extraterrestrial. So that's the way I got into the, the business. And it was pretty much a, a sequence of ideas. Uh, and the, the most recent one was connected to evidence. And um, so that's how I got. And of course, you know, just recently, a couple of weeks ago, there was this report that was delivered to Congress talking about some unusual objects here on Earth that the government is unable to identify and doesn't know the nature of. And serious people, you know, in the government are talking about it as real. Uh, people like uh, former presidents uh, uh, Clinton and Obama, former CIA directors like Brennan and Woolsey. These are highly respectable people. And, uh, uh, you know, the government is the most conservative organization that you can imagine because people are worried in politics. People are worried about their image a lot because image buys you political power. And how is it possible that the government talks about something like that, which was stigma and taboo in the past, whereas the scientific community, which is supposed to be uh, occupied with blue sky thinking, you know, open-minded thinking, is ridiculing this and saying, don't even think about it, don't dare to talk about it, and business as usual. So how is that possible? How did we come to this point? Yeah, I, that is one of the questions that I have. It's, it seems that uh, so much of, quote, mainstream science is so reluctant to even touch this subject. And yet, you know, we have programs like SETI, for example. You mentioned uh, radio waves. You know, we've been listening to the skies for, I mean, that program's been around for a while. And yet we don't really have any evidence, you know, through this program. So why wouldn't we you know, consider some of the ideas that you have? So, so I'll tell you my experience, which is quite remarkable, because I'm a theoretical astrophysicist, okay? So that means I get, I, I make a living out of ideas, okay? And actually, when I started my career, uh, my mentor at Princeton, uh, John Bacall, said, what computer uh, programs are you often using? And I told him, I don't, I don't really use much the computer, you know, and I, I only use it when I have no other choice, and I only use it to the extent that I really need it. And he said, how can you get a PhD with such an approach? He was uh, joking. And in fact, I had a career uh, based on the fact that people come to my office, tell me about you know, what they're doing. And within a few seconds, I come up with a question saying, did you check this or that? And they tell me, wow, that's a great insight. And in fact, they work on it for months afterwards. And that, you know, for some of them, it defines their career. So I just don't understand why they didn't think about it in advance. But at any event, that's the way I make my, my living. But so I'm a theoretical astrophysicist. And, you know, I've written by now more than 800 papers and so forth. And then, um, you know, I, uh, as a result of my book and as a result of the uh, Pentagon report to Congress, I participated in a lot of interviews and podcasts and so forth. So, um, so my name is quite visible now. And suddenly, like a few weeks ago, I get uh, an email from the administrators uh, saying at Harvard saying, okay, there is this fund of uh, a certain amount of money, you know, hundreds of thousands. Uh, that is uh, that you can use for your research and i say what do you mean there is this fund this never happens like who is the person that gave this money i want to thank that person isn't it and then you know it took a while for them to get back to me 
And I said, look, this is an elementary thing to do, to thank someone who gives you money, right? I mean, I've never met that person. I don't know who that person is. And I want to thank that person because he gave me money. So at the end, uh, I was given the information, okay, of who that person is. I established a, a Zoom meeting with that person and uh, thanked him. And and by now, there are, you know, four wealthy individuals that decided to give me or give my research group uh, funds to explore uh, the nature of um, unidentified objects, uh, including objects like Oumuamua, this uh, object that was found in uh, 2017 that um, may be a technological relic from another civilization. And, you know, it's an, uh, an observational uh, search. It's basically getting new data and analyzing it. So even though I'm a theoretical astrophysicist, you know, I'm now trying to establish a research group that will collect the data. Because if I don't do it, other people apparently won't do it. And, you know, you don't go to a plumber and ask the plumber to bake you a cake, right? That's, that's something you never do. And so going to the government, uh, to, to politicians, national security advisors, or military personnel, and asking them to explain to us what they're seeing in the sky is inappropriate. It's just like asking a plumber to bake you a cake because they were not trained as scientists. So that, first of all, the data was not collected with the best instruments. You know, the camera was jittering in the airplane, in, in the jet, uh, fighter jet that, that was used by the pilots. And, and the pilots are not scientists, you know. And so why would we expect them to figure out what the nature of these objects is, you know. And um, it should be the task of scientists. So this subject should move away from the talking points of politicians, military personnel, to be in the realm of scientific inquiry. And basically one can deploy telescopes equipped with cameras and feed the data stream into computers that will analyze the data. And that's what I hope to establish. And the reason I can do that is because these wealthy individuals approached me. I didn't do any fundraising. So um, in a way, it's remarkable, right? Because the private sector is more open-minded than the scientific community. And I should say, even the religious orthodox community <laughs> is open-minded because there was a, a magazine in New York City of the Jewish Orthodox called Ami, and they decided to feature my book on the cover of their magazine. So a colleague of mine from uh, Harvard University, Stephen Greenblatt, wrote an email to me and said, look, it, it looks like the orthodox are more open-minded towards your ideas than your colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> well, it does really seem as if the private sector is really the future of kind of pushing the advancement of technology forward. I mean, even NASA has now, you know, when they dismantled the shuttle program, have, you know, incentivized and private, you know, privatized that whole section of their uh, of their program. And so it does seem like there because there's less red tape, you know, that there are people with funds and, and the means to kind of take, you know, what seems like maybe a wild idea and push it forward, like your Elon Musk and, and that sort of thing. Well, it's not just red tape. That's what I'm trying uh, to emphasize. I think it has to do with the intellectual culture that uh, is open to innovation and risk-taking, uh, entrepreneurship in the private sector. And if you think about it, that's quite ridiculous that, that organizations that are 
for profit. You know, that's the definition. Are more open-minded than non-profit organizations like academia. And moreover, in academia, you have this concept of tenure. What's the purpose of tenure? The purpose is to allow people that uh, are sufficiently accomplished to have job security irrespective of the risks they take in their research. That's the purpose. Now, what do you find instead? That once people get tenure, they become even more cautious. They don't take risks because they want to improve their image, never uh, make mistakes, get honors and awards. And that misses the, the point, you know. And how is it possible that you have blue sky research in private companies uh, at the level that um, supersedes academia. And uh, it has to do with the intellectual culture, with the willingness to take risks. And, you know, if, if you never take risks, if you never put some skin in the game, you never make discoveries. Uh, and even Albert Einstein, in the last decade of his career, made three mistakes. Uh, he argued that black holes do not exist, gravitational waves do not exist, and quantum mechanics doesn't have spooky action at a distance. And the, the moral of the story is that you have to allow yourself to make mistakes. That's what kids do. You know, that's why I'm saying science is supposed to be uh, driven by childhood curiosity. You know, like you shouldn't be afraid of bumping into things, making mistakes, you know, getting some bruises, uh, because that's the way to learn uh, new things that you've never anticipated. And the attention should be really on anomalies, things that do not match what you expected. So if you see an object like Oumuamua that doesn't look like a comet or an asteroid that you have seen many times before, that should be an exciting occasion. Uh, that should be an opportunity to learn something new because even if it's natural in origin, it represents a birthplace, you know, a nursery that makes such objects that we've never witnessed before because it doesn't look like objects in the solar system. So that should be exciting. But instead, when there was a a colloquium about Oumuamua at Harvard, and I left the, the auditorium with a colleague of mine, he said, Oumuamua is so strange, I wish it never existed. So to, <laughs> to the mainstream, actually, when you see something anomalous, it's a threat. It's a, it puts them in discomfort. And that should not be the case. It should be an exciting occasion. Let's figure out what this thing is rather than be attached to our ego and claim that we knew the answer before it appeared. Absolutely. And, and so that's a great transition into a um, which, by the way, is, is Hawaiian for scout, I believe. Is that, yes, is that correct? that's right. Mm -hmm. So describe for people exactly what this is and why this was such an unusual discovery. Well, it was the first object that we identified from outside the solar system in the vicinity of Earth. And we detected it just because it reflects uh, reflected sunlight, the size of a football field. And at first people thought it must be a comet. But uh, comets are rocks covered with ice. So when they get close to the sun, they the ice evaporates and you see a cometary tail of gas and dust. And... Uh, there was no cometary tail around this object. And in fact, the Spitzer Space Telescope looked very deeply and couldn't find any traces of carbon-based molecules. So it was definitely not a comet of the type that we have seen before. And then people said, okay, well, maybe it's just bare rock. It's an asteroid from another star. And the problem with that is, first of all, as it was tumbling, the amount of sunlight reflected changed by a factor of 10. So that, that meant that it has a very extreme shape. 
and the best fit to the variation in, in reflected sunlight was that of a flat object, pancake-shaped. And then uh, it, it showed and exhibited a, a, an excess push away from the sun. Um, uh, and the only way I could interpret that, given that it had no evaporation that gives it the rocket effect, um, I, the only way I could think of explaining that is by the reflection of sunlight from its surface. And for that, it had to be very thin, sort of like a sail. And so I said, you know, nature doesn't make very thin object like that. Uh, so it might be artificial in origin. And then in September 2020, there was another object discovered that also exhibited an excess push by reflecting sunlight uh, and um, didn't have a cometary tail. And turns out that it was given the name 2020SO. And uh, the astronomers that discovered it with the same telescope, PANSTARS in Hawaii, they realized that it came actually from Earth. It was a rocket booster launched in 1966 towards the moon. And um, um, therefore, you know, it had the thin walls and that's why the reflection of sunlight uh, gave it a push. It had a large area for its weight. And uh, also, um, we know that we produced it, so it's artificial in origin. The question is, who produced Oumuamua? That, that is the question, right? So a lot of people just kind of pass it off, it seems like, uh, as, you know, an asteroid or nothing, you know, significant. But, you know, as you said, it, you know, the other thing that I think I read was that if it had been a comet, we would also expect that over time it would shrink in size as the, you know, the ice melted around it. And that wasn't happening as well, correct? Yeah. So in fact, in order to get the push that it exhibited, it had to lose about a tenth of its mass, 10%. And first, we would see that clearly as a cometary tail, but second, it would change the uh, way that the object moved in a way that we would notice. And moreover, there is a certain distance from the sun where ice doesn't evaporate. So this excess push would have had a cutoff beyond a certain distance. We didn't see that. The, the push declined inversely with distance squared, as you expect uh, for reflected sunlight, and it didn't have a sharp cutoff, as you expect, for evaporating uh, ice. And uh, all of this argue that this it's something that we've never seen before. And, you know, there were a number of people, four of them, that four teams that suggested alternative explanations for the weird properties of Oumuamua, which, which are summarized in my book, and there are more that I didn't mention. And um, they came up with objects that we've never seen before, like a hydrogen iceberg, a nitrogen iceberg, a, a cloud of dust particles, a hundred times less dense than air, things like that. We've never seen it. So if we are entertaining things that we've never seen, why not consider also the possibility that it's an artificial object? So if it is an artificial object, what, what do you propose that it, it might be? Right. So originally I just said maybe it's a light sail, a, a very thin uh, film of material uh, that is being pushed by light. But in fact, after the Pentagon report came out, uh, I started thinking, you know, maybe if there are probes here on Earth that were uh, sprinkled on Earth a long time ago, maybe this object was just a receiver, you know, a, a dish that was collecting information from them. Uh, and it was tumbling every eight hours simply because it looked in all directions. And uh, so it was thin, but for a different purpose, just like 
this rocket booster that we found uh, in uh, September 2020 uh, that uh, we launched, but was not a light sail. It, it was just thin, but for a different purpose. So uh, maybe there is a different purpose uh, for which uh, Oumuamua was constructed, but we will never know about these particular objects. However, if we collect more data on similar objects, then we might figure out their nature and their purpose. And the way to get more data, I mean, it's not a philosophical question, uh, like many people argue about it as if it, you know, there was even an, <laughs> recently there was an article in uh, Nature Astronomy uh, trying to rule out the possibility that Oumuamua was artificial based on philosophical arguments, which I find strange. So, like, there used to be philosophers during the days of Galileo that refused to look through his telescope because they knew the answer, that the sun moves around the earth. So, are we back to those days where philosophers would make arguments for why they know the answer without uh, dealing with more evidence? Um, but at any event... My point is, it's not a matter of philosophers uh, deciding, and I, I don't care much about what uh, philosophical arguments say. All I care about is getting a high-resolution photograph. So you send a camera on a, on a spacecraft that will intercept the, object, uh, the trajectory of an object like that, just like OSIRIS-REx uh, landed on the asteroid Bennu, took a close-up photograph, and took a sample that it will bring back to Earth in 2023. So, you know, you just get close to an object, take a photograph, and they say a picture is worth a thousand words. In my case, a picture is worth 66,000 words, the number of words in my book. I wouldn't need to write the book if I had a photograph. I would just show the photograph to people and that's it, and not even say anything. But it sounds like we missed our opportunity, though, right? By the time we realized what we were potentially dealing with, it had gone too far to even, you know, kind of intercept or, or get a good look at. Yeah, but there, there should be many more objects that we will find in the future, because we just looked for a few years with pan stars uh, surveying the sky. And that means if we look for another few years, we will find another one. Or if we look with the Vera Rubin Observatory that, that will become operational in two years, it will be much more sensitive and we could find one every month. So let's just keep looking. The worst we can do is listening to the mainstream scientists that say, oh, it's nothing, it's natural, don't worry about it, business as usual. And then you don't look because that's equivalent to closing the curtains on your windows and saying, we don't have neighbors, I'm just the smartest in the entire universe. And if you want to convince me otherwise, just show me extraordinary evidence. But by the way, the curtains are closed, so you can't really see through them whether they're... <laughs> so, of course, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy if you don't invest any funds in the search. But as I said before, I am funded, I'm getting funded, so I don't <laughs> care. I mean, and it's not coming from selection committees populated by my colleagues in academia. It's coming from the private sector. Guess what? Uh, there are people that are more imaginative than that and are willing me to open the curtain, uh, to allow me to open the curtains. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, obviously, if you adopt the, the view that, you know, you need extraordinary evidence, but you will never look through the windows, obviously, you know, can sit at home for a while, but eventually you'll hear a knock on the door. And then when you hope, when you open the door, you do see <laughs> some extraordinary evidence. Uh, but it's a bit late uh, at that point because 
you didn't plan, you didn't realize the reality that you live in. You know, it would remind me uh, of my daughters when they were small um, at home. They thought that they're the smartest in the world. And then they had a psychological shock when we brought them to the kindergarten. On the first day, uh, they hated the kindergarten because they met other kids that are smarter than they are. And obviously, they would have preferred to stay at home and maintain their illusion. But I think science is about breaking illusions. It's about figuring out what the reality is like. And I just find it surprising to see the mainstream in science arguing in favor of maintaining our ignorance. One of the things that seems to be helping to kind of break this illusion, uh, as you called it, is, as you mentioned, referenced earlier, we have these uh, Pentagon documents that have been released along with video footage of U.S. Navy pilots capturing, you know, these objects that are unexplained, that that are moving uh, at speeds that we can't replicate, at least with anything that we're aware of, any technology that we're aware of currently. And it seems like a lot of you know, scientists are kind, kind of having to take a step back and say, okay, well, maybe there is something here. What is your take on, on, on kind of the things that we've seen so far and what it might be? Well, I think what we are seeing is just the tip of the iceberg because the government has much more data that is classified. And the reason it's classified is not because the data itself uh, has information that should be classified. It's because the data was taken by instruments that if, uh, if the data were released, people will figure out you know, in other countries, uh, our adversaries will figure out what kind of instruments we are using to monitor our sky. And that would be a national security uh, compromise. You know, if other countries will know what we, we, we are using to monitor, uh, to defend the U.S. And, um, and so as a result of that, the data is not released. But um, people that have seen some of the classified data are talking about it seriously. And that's why I'm saying... Uh, that, you know, scientists should take it seriously. And I think the most important statement made in the report, other than the fact that, you know, there must be many more incidents than the ones reported because there was a stigma on this subject, there was a taboo on discussing it, people were afraid to speak out. Uh, but putting that aside, the most important statement was that some of the objects must be real because they were detected by multiple instruments, uh, infrared sensors, um, radar systems, uh, optical cameras, and many people seeing the same thing, doing the same thing at the same time, you know. So it can't be the malfunction of one instrument. It can't be illusions of one person. Uh, so that's why, and, and I'm sure that there is even more evidence that it's real, you know, that the government just doesn't, cannot release. So my point is most of the sky is not classified. You know, that's as, a, as an astronomer, I know that we're looking at the sky. Nobody tells us, don't look, you know, at least now, maybe in the days of Galileo, that that was the case. Don't look. But uh, so my point is, you know, scientists can just monitor the sky for unusual things. And um, that's not very expensive, by the way. It's less it's a factor of 10 less expensive than the search for dark matter. It cost us hundreds of millions of dollars so far. We don't know what most of the matter in the universe is, so we label it dark matter. And it's made of particles whose identity is not known. So we're searching in the dark because it, this, this matter is not coupled to light. It doesn't create light. It doesn't reflect light. So we can't see it. So we call it dark matter. And we don't know what it is. So like 40 years ago, the most popular view was 
maybe it's weakly interacting massive particles. I remember that in the 80s, that was a dominant uh, idea. And when I started doing astrophysics, that was the prevailing approach. People said the dark matter is made of weakly interacting massive particles. And then a lot of experiments were funded. We were searching for that. And the only thing we, we came up with as a result of this investment of funds was to set limits and rule out, actually, the entire parameter space that was considered natural back in the 1980s. And actually, in a conference that I organized uh, locally at Harvard just five years ago, I asked uh, an experimentalist that gave a lecture about the search for weakly interacting massive particles. I said, uh, uh, how long will you continue to put limits on this type of particle? You know, after all, you've dedicated decades and found nothing. And... And he said, as long as I'm funded, I will continue, even if it takes my entire career. Um, so just think about it. Hundreds of millions of dollars didn't find anything. Of course, it's a search in the dark. It's part of the mainstream. And it's legitimate to do that. But why should we invest a thousand times less in the search for technological relics near Earth? Why should that be so much less funded? And especially when the government comes up with a report about some unidentified objects, why should that be ridiculed and ignored, business as usual, and not even paid attention to uh, when the search for dark matter is funded so much better? And to me, you know, science should reflect the interests of society, because if we find uh, extraterrestrial technology, it would have dramatic implications for us. Uh, we would realize that there might be a smarter kid on the block. We would perhaps learn about technologies that represent our future. It will revise our notions about what we might have in the future. It will change our religious and philosophical beliefs about our place in the universe. It will change our relations with each other because we will all be part of the human species. There is something else out there. And all of that you know, it's so much more significant than realizing that the dark matter is made of weakly interacting massive particles. What effect would that have on our daily routines? It will just be an anecdote, just, you know, a matter of curiosity. Um, the dark matter doesn't really have a direct impact on our daily lives. Of course, it's important for how the, you know, structure in the universe developed and so forth, understanding where we came from and so forth. But compare that to finding evidence for other technological civilizations. I mean, uh, it just strikes me as a missed opportunity, if I had to say it, uh, more bluntly, that the scientific community just doesn't recognize. And in fact, it could bring much more funds to science if we were to pay attention to this subject. And it would bring many more kids to science because suddenly science will become exciting. It will not be a matter of people in you know, wearing ties and thinking very highly of themselves. It's something that everyone can understand. And, you know, it doesn't require very sophisticated equations and you can actually understand, you know, can. Um, and uh, maybe it will involve uh, artificial intelligence to figure out what their computers are doing. You know, if they sent out systems with artificial intelligence, we need our own artificial intelligence systems to interpret what their systems are doing. Just like asking our kids to tell us what we find on the internet. What does it mean? Uh, because they're much more computer uh, skilled than we are. And so I think it's just the next frontier that would be extremely exciting and we have the capacity to explore it. So why not Why not do it? And why is it so abundant? That's not clear to me. Yeah, and it, it does seem that uh, 
sort of like you know, the private funding that that you're seeing and you know coming in as a result uh it does seem that the advancement in technology when it comes to just basic cameras you know it, it seems like things that we see in the sky will get a lot harder to ignore i guess because you know there's people who are walking around with 4k cameras in their pockets right and they're paying attention and and uh you know they're getting video evidence and photographic evidence and it seems like that will just become more and more overwhelming until it's you know, we can't ignore it any longer. Yeah, one thing to recognize about um, cell phone cameras is that the aperture is just a few millimeters in size. And as a result, you will always have a fuzzy image. If you see a human-sized object at a distance of a mile, it would be fuzzy in order to get a high-resolution image so that, you know, you can figure out what the object is and maybe read off the label, you know, made in nations so-and-so rather than made on planet X. In order to do that, you need a telescope with an aperture of 10 centimeters to a meter, you know. And by the way, I checked online the other day and I saw that, you know, if you just Google uh, one meter telescope, you get to a website that says half a million dollars add to the bag. You can click on add to the bag just like you do on buying a toothbrush or something. Uh, oh my gosh. I don't know. There, there must be people that have the money to just add it to their bag. <laughs> so what you're saying is we need to we need to make these more affordable so the average person can, well, can get if, a hold of <laughs> you know if a project like the one i'm trying to lead will need you know a hundred of those i'm sure the price will go down significantly yeah absolutely well um I, I really appreciate you coming on. This is absolutely fascinating. And uh, I'm sure we could talk for another hour about uh, black holes and all the things that we've learned since even when I was a kid, uh, you know, during the 80s. But uh, really appreciate your time. Uh, thank you so much for spending some time with us tonight. Thanks for hosting me. I had a wonderful time. Is Oumuamua really an alien probe sent here by some advanced civilization? Or is it some sort of naturally occurring phenomenon that we're just now encountering for the first time? If it's not some sort of probe, then why doesn't it have a tail like a comet? And why is it moving at such an unusual speed compared to other rocks hurtling through space? And why, if scientists are right, is it the shape of either a cigar or possibly a pancake? Conveniently, I might add, the very shape reported by UFO witnesses. Unfortunately, we may never know, since we missed our window to view the object more clearly with our current technology. But as telescopes and technology advance, maybe, just maybe, we'll be able to look out into the darkness of space and see one of our distant neighbors headed our way. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider telling a friend and leaving a five-star review on iTunes. I'll be back next week with a brand new mystery. And until then, thanks for listening to From the void. <laughs>